Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to the ASCA podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by AlphaFit, the largest Australian-made and owned provider of high-performance equipment for strength and conditioning. Hey guys, welcome back to the ASCA podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Coyne, and this is episode 107. Now, I hope everyone is having a great start to the year, and to kick things off, I've got to mention our podcast sponsor, AlphaFit. They're the largest Australian-made and owned high-performance equipment partner to the strength and conditioning community. Outfit offer a wide range of high-quality S&C equipment, all designed and engineered to help you and your athletes perform at their best. Outfit's expert consultation team can also work with you to understand your requirements and develop the perfect solution that's fit for your purpose. Make sure to visit outfit.com.au slash ASCA. Now, the guest for this episode is a person I've had a lot to do with, and it's an absolute pleasure to have him on the podcast, is Gavin Pratt. Gavin is currently the Director of Strength and Conditioning for the UFC PI in Las Vegas. He's an accredited ASCA Level 3 Elite Coach and holds a Master of Strength and Conditioning from Edith Cowan University. Prior to this role, he was the Performance Manager at Exos in Shanghai, China. This involved working with multiple Olympic sports in preparation for their 2018 National Games, after which he then focused on assisting in the development of the country's surfing program in preparation for the Asian and Olympic Games. Gavin was also awarded the ASCA Mental Coach of the Year in 2021 for his work with uh, coaches all around the world. Now, in this episode with Gavin, which is a ripper, uh, we go over everything neck strength, diagnostics, force ratios, force vectors, the ideal difference between flexion and lateral flexion, as well as the neck strength matrix, which progresses from isometric to slow, then fast dynamic strength, and finally reactive strength. We also chat on other assessments the UFC PI uses with fighters, and the benefits of athlete feedback on improving practices as S&C coaches. So there's a heap of relevancy in this episode for anybody that works with athletes that have to absorb head impacts, think or any other football codes, think uh, snowboarding, ski, skiing with large falls. Uh, all of this is relevant to you, and there's also a lot you could take from this, in fact, and apply it to other joints in the body and how to approach testing and implementing exercise interventions. So look, without further ado, let's hit the play button on this interview and rip into the podcast. All right, team, ASA podcast time. Back on the line, I've got Gavin Pratt all the way from Las Vegas. Gavin, man, thanks for coming on board. My pleasure, Connie. Great to see you again, mate. Yeah, you bet. Same to you, same to you, man. Hey, I know a fair bit about your story, but a lot of the listeners uh, might not or, or um, aren't as familiar. So can you give us a little synopsis of how and why it all began for you in S&C and then um, take us all the way through to to where you are now, what you're doing now and, uh, uh, and everything you're up to? Okay. Well, I, I guess the main thing for me is I, I kind of had a bit of a different story. Um, when I left school, I didn't really know what to do, except I know I wanted to play AFL football. But I think a lot of the thing with SNC coaches, as we all know, we we probably couldn't make the grade for whatever reason it was, but we we're really good in the gym, and that was a very similar situation for me. So I ended up going straight into strength and conditioning at East Fremantle Football Club, the Sharkies, after playing for them, and then um, that kind of kicked off my SNC career. And at the same time, I was uh, working as a personal trainer at a local gym. And I, I was there for about 10 years. I 
did a certificate four in health and fitness. That's how I sort of became qualified, I guess, back in 1997. And I kind of just worked. <laughs> that was about it. I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I know I enjoyed helping people like that and um, being around sports. So I just kept plugging away. And then after about five years, I started to get a little bit bored, needed something else. So I went to the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, which was a university there where people like Hugh Jackman went. Um, and there's all different courses for the arts. And I did a course, a three-year degree undergrad in uh, a Bachelor of Broadcasting in Radio and TV. And as soon as I finished that, I went into TV presenting as a side gig alongside my personal training business. So for the next 10 years, from WA to the Gold Coast, I would actually be working on television as well as coaching people. Uh, when I moved to the Gold Coast, obviously found you and I started working alongside you, mate, which was a fantastic few years. And during that time, I was doing my master's with it, with Edith Cowan University uh, in strength and conditioning. So it was a really cool little mix that I had going on, still doing the TV stuff. And then I guess to cut it short, I just got an email before Christmas one year from Exos, the American company. Um, they'd actually offered Selwyn Griffith, who's at the Melbourne Footy Club, a gig, and he just started working at Brisbane. And so he said, no, I've got my dream job working in football, but I do know a guy. And so these guys actually emailed me out of the blue. I had didn't go for the job or anything and um, said, basically, do you want to come to China? So that was a fairly big decision in my life. I had my own business at that stage. I was obviously on the Gold Coast surfing pretty much most days when there were waves. And that was pretty exciting for me. And so to actually uproot that and go across to a place I knew nothing about was fairly uh, scary. And uh, I like that. So we're in. My wife and I, Hannah, were in and we ended up going over there working for 18 months preparing for the national Chinese National Games, which is the biggest tournament outside of the Olympics, basically, in terms of participants. And uh, they did really well. The Shanghai team that I worked for won a total of 36 medals with regards to the teams that we worked with, I think 19 gold or something like that. So it was a really successful time. I met some fantastic humans that I'm still friends with to this day, great practitioners. It was wonderful. And then I was sort of, that contract had finished, so I was wondering what to do. Did in limbo, and an opportunity came up when I went surfing on an island in China, and I met up with Pete Townend, the original OG world champion, first world champion in surfing, and he was being asked to coach the national Chinese team and also develop a team for province which is i guess our state similar to that and so one of the provinces was a province called um Jiejiang, i think and the capital city was hangzhou and so we we called ourselves the hangzhou surf team and that team was going to be based on the river and so there was a river wave that would break um, every time there was a full moon the tides would shift and one swell line would run through this river for about three and a half hours every day sometimes twice a day and you get jet skis to get on this unreal wave it's a perfect wave but if anyone wants to look it up it's called the silver dragon fantastic event and they would surf on this wave and that was going to be our home base we're going to actually have a base built for us on the river and we'd use that as our surfing um, opportunity to develop the team in preparation for the olympics unfortunately uh, if anyone's worked in china they'll know that sometimes there's um, politics involved with sport and that's exactly what happened. Uh, the person, that the government official that was funding it decided um, he actually got a promotion 
to work in the national government and the person coming in behind him knew nothing about surfing and so put a hold to the funding and that kind of fell in a heap. So I was, I was left in a bit of limbo there and then the UFC decided they were going to build a performance institute in Shanghai and that's when those interviews started happening and I was fortunate enough to become the manager of the strength and conditioning team there and really start up the academy program from scratch, which was a really exciting project and I don't know how many practitioners actually get that opportunity to start an academy in a sport that has never done it before. So um, I know you and I were very fortunate to be a part of that process. It's really exciting to have developed that. And then after a couple of years, uh, I got caught in COVID there while my wife got caught in Australia. Uh, pretty dark times for about 18 months, really, just pushing on with work, being away from her and um, sort of having to quarantine each time I go to Australia or back to China. It would be a month quarantine, two weeks in each location. And after about 18 months, I was like, I'm done with this. And just so happened that my predecessor, Bo Sandoval, had decided he was going to move on to uh, another role in America. So I got offered the director of strength and conditioning at the PI in Vegas. And so since then, that's where I've been about almost two years now. Man, how good. How good. Great story, Gab. It's Great a journey. Story, brother. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I was just going to say, there's politics and then there's Chinese politics. Yeah, you haven't experienced no... it's hard, hard to understand. Hard to understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, obviously, you're you by by circumstance, um, you've had to become, and, and I say this, I'll, I'll put two and two together here. Uh, working for the UFC, UFC people get um, hit in the head and there's concussions. Part of preventing concussions and or, or doing your best to prevent those concussions is is neck strength and, and neck capability. Um, and I know it's a real interest area of yours and real expertise now of yours. Um, because you've had to become an expert in that area, right? So, man, tell tell us tell us give us a bit more information on why that's important, um, and and particularly what does it really help with this next strength? Oof, this this could be a long answer and a long discussion. So, uh, basically, when I started the UFC, we, we we saw that there was nothing being done to prevent not only um, potential sports related concussions, but also um, but one of the highest mechanisms of injury with regards to grappling in training is the neck. It's actually around 16% of the total injury me mechanism of injury in grappling training. So worst case scenario, the, the purpose behind strengthening in the neck is to actually allow the athletes to potentially have more time on the mat. So there's no harm in terms of what we're doing in regards to the concussion prevention. But there's a lot of research and literature saying we don't really know if it works yet. But we're not harming the athletes, so let's keep trying to push down that until the research catches up. That's our mentality. What we have seen is that not just about the neck, it's about the trunk, neck, head coupling component. And that mechanism is actually crucial. So even when we're testing our diagnostics using that fixed frame dynamometer, we're looking at the four force vectors of flexion, extension, and lateral flexion. We're not just looking at absolute and relative forces. We're looking at ratios and symmetries to make sure that we're trying to improve the ability of um, decreasing those head accelerations, whether it's linear or rotational accelerations, as that's what seems to cause sports-related concussions. So the neck is a component of it, and if we miss training the neck, then we're missing a whole point or a whole part of that coupling, that trunk-neck-head coupling that is actually really crucial to that. Um, I guess 
I'll preface that with saying the reason we're having to do it is we've got some really exciting data coming out from um, sports wellness analytics who have been using mouth guard data for us for actually a completely different reason, more to do with heart rates, which is also an exciting topic in itself. Um, but I've asked the guys to have a look at some of the forces and do some calculations around the forces that are seen not just in sparring, but we've actually got a couple of competition in the UFC data sets that we've been looking at. And it's fascinating how much force is uh, needing to be accepted by that by the head. Um, we, we've seen on average around a, a, a single strike. So we've got breakdowns of all the strikes that would have occurred in these fights and the, and accounts as well. So around 55 jabs were thrown between these two fights. And on average, it was around 4,000 newtons per strike that was received to the head. That's some serious impact. So now we're looking at, okay, well, we're not going to get that out of a single rep with any of the exercises we do. So are we going to have to start thinking about the accumulation of those forces to help prepare the athlete? Um, when we look at our diagnostic approach, that's, a, that's the way that we go about prescribing our neck-based training. We'll look at the force frame dynamometer, like I said, and the four force vectors. We'll look at symmetry and ratios. We'll then compare that because we've now got enough normative data to look at weight class and gender-specific norms. So we can clearly see if it's a flexion issue with the athlete, and so therefore that's going to help program for flexion. We're not just giving them any random neck exercise. It's actually in the force vector that they're deficient in. And then we've got a, something we've developed called the neck matrix. And basically what this is, is we're going to start with our static strength, progress into slow dynamic strength. So thinking like your 1RM, your, your isotonic based lifts to just get general strength and hypertrophy. Once we have got that base level of strength, so, you know, what's strong enough, we look at the data. Yep, you've ticked all the boxes for all the force vectors and the ratios. Fantastic. We're now going to move on to your fast dynamic strength. So a greater rate of force development. And then we're going to finish off with your reactive strength. The reason we're doing this is in the literature, we've seen some studies that have shown when it comes to stabilization of the head, and this is with soccer, um, it was found that men could actually stabilize their head better to a greater degree than females, but females were able to activate their SCMs faster and at a greater percentage of maximal voluntary contraction than the males. So their reactive component was really good, but just because they didn't have that base force, they weren't able to stabilize the head as well as the men. So we need to make sure that we're taking into consideration the gender, the maximal strength associated with that gender, and then it's like any S&C, right? Get them strong first, strength underpins everything, and then start working on their reactionary or rate of force development component. The neck or that coupling mechanism is no different to the rest of um, strength and conditioning practices and principles. Um, it's just about how we go about it and then the exercises you choose and the reasons behind why you choose them. Mm, yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. And I, I really liked how you um... – that neck matrix where you go from isometric um, to slow dynamic, fast dynamic, and that principle. Because a lot of times you'll see um, neck strengthening be limited to just isometric work, and then people think the job's done versus it's probably not, and and uh, and you're leading the way there. Because um, you have to go through that slow dynamic, that fast dynamic, that rate of force development, that that reaction type, type strength. Um, 
question for you. Question for you. How how do you set up your your test for the uh, for the neck? This is what the listeners will want to know. How do you set it up? Um, in for those four force vectors you're looking at the flexion extension lateral flexion left lateral flexion right yep great question because um there has been a study by mcbride in 2022 and uh that that group looked at the reliability and validity of using a fixed frame dynamometer and they found that it was a really good reliable way to look at static strength um what a lot of the a lot of the professionals, I guess, are suggesting is a quadruped position, and we tried that in Shanghai. Um, and what we found was, you know, classic athlete. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. So if they go into an extension position in quadruped, where the paddles on the back of their head, they're able to use their hands into the ground and get even more forces from that. Whereas when you look at flexion, where the paddles on the front of your head in quadruped, you can't use your hands as much. So automatically, there's a difference in the ability of utilizing other limbs. And then when you're looking in a quadruped for your lateral, we're trying to minimize the shift from the body, but obviously athletes are going to try and get away with that as much as possible. So what we did was we lay them down and we just took that out of the equation. So for flexion, you go straight legs, hands across your chest like you're in a funeral parlor, paddle on the front of your head, lift the chin, tuck the chin, and that's going to be your flexion. Flip over, paddle on the back of the head, palms facing the roof, hands by your side, legs straight. This time you're going to lift the head into the paddle for extension. And then the side lying or lateral flexion, lie in a, basically a sleeping position on your side, knees slightly bent, but knees together. And then your bottom hand, we're actually getting you to reach up and touch the opposite shoulder because um, if you don't, you're able to use that elbow a little bit to get some traction. So we're trying to take that elbow off the floor and make sure that we're trying to isolate as much as possible. Um, with regards to the two studies, we found that flexion and extension was actually similar between what McBride did in our cohort with the um, UFC and MMA athletes. Flexion and extension were actually quite similar, um, but certainly when we're doing quadruped, they weren't. We, we got bigger scores in quadruped, but when we lay them down, the flexion extension in lying versus quadruped was similar with the general population for, you know, college sort of level athletes. Um, but the lateral flexion was hugely different. And, and we're sort of hypothesizing that this could be two components. It could be the fact that we're lying our athletes down and maybe their hips and shoulders can get more purchased into the ground to help with the neck. Or it could be sports specific, where when our athletes go for single legs or double legs, they're often, often trying to having to put their head into the opponent's belly or, or midsection and use that head slightly to drive the opponent down for their takedown. So over time, you keep training that mechanism, then you're going to naturally build up the strength in those muscles. And so we're sort of saying this is exactly why we need normative data for MMA. We have such a high neck injury rate. We have a potentially high risk of concussion and we have a different cohort in terms of what's required for our sport. So now we need to try and make sure that, all right, as long as we've got a gold standard testing protocol, which literature doesn't, and as long as we've got a gold standard process of strengthening the neck, which we don't, then we can start looking at, all right, what does it mean for your sport? So hopefully we're sort of starting to do that within MMA and then that can spread out to other sports and we can hopefully take the lead on it. Mm, how good, how good. For the listeners, you spoke about a paddle and there'll be an apparatus you're using to test the um, test this next experience. Can you describe 
what that apparatus is, whether it's the valve force frame, whether it's something like Kangatech or uh, mm. so, so forth, but just describe that paddle and what it, what it actually does. Sure, yeah, we do use the valve force frame at the moment and uh, Kangatech is also another one that um, can be utilised as well. So that frame doesn't go anywhere. Often you're lying down on that frame and the paddle works as, I guess, essentially a force plate. And so that will give us a, a measure, not only in newtons of force, but also we're able to, at the back end, pick up impulse as well. So that's something we're looking more into by creating a certain time frame for the test. We're going to be able to try and determine what impulses can be calculated from that because the reason that's important, um, and I'll come back to the force frame, I guess, but uh, the reason it's important to look at impulse is some of this mouthguard data is highlighting that strikes are thrown in under 0.3 milliseconds often around 0.1 milliseconds with forces up to 10 to 40 Gs. So we're getting some serious force in a very quick amount of time. And there's a whole nother conversation I can have around the neurocognitive aspect of that as well. Um, but that's why we're starting to look into impulse. It's like, okay, your, your absolute strength was fantastic, but it took you a hell of a long time to get there. We need to improve on that. So you've got the peak force, great let's start working on that fast dynamic strength or that reactive strength to ensure that you can um, express that force really quickly. Mm, mm, for sure, for sure. And then so the, the metrics you might look at, you, you mentioned sort of peak force, you mentioned impulse. Um, are they the two main ones you look at with the uh, with collecting data on the next stream? From a uh, output perspective, yes. And then from a, uh, I guess, not just a symmetry perspective, you know, if you're left and right asymmetrical, obviously you want that, but then there's other ratios as well. So flexion to extension ratio uh, in the literature, it's saying that if your flexion is 0.6 to one extension, you're at higher risk of concussion. Um, and then in the literature, it's also saying that your flexion to lateral flexion should be one to one. What we found in our athletic cohort is it's actually 0.8 flexion to one extension is what we're after and 0.8 flexion to one in lateral flexion as well because those lateral flexors are much stronger in our cohort. So just by doing lots of testing on all our athletes of all different weight classes, we've actually started to accumulate our own data for our sport. And I think that's, that, that's super exciting for us. Um, but at the moment, that's sort of what we're looking at predominantly. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And then, what what uh, type level of or amount of say peak force might you be looking at? Just to give the listeners a, a ballpark number if they want to go out there and, and do this themselves. Yeah, sure. It, um, so for flexion, we'd probably be looking at between two hundred and two hundred and fifty being quite good. Um, often we're seeing around one seventy to two hundred for flexion. Um, with extension, prone lying position. We'd prefer that to be between sort of 300 and 400 newtons. And then with our lateral, obviously this is for MMA specific. Don't, don't expect um, someone else to be able to do this because it's pretty freakish, but they're usually around four or 500 newtons. But again, I've had an athlete who um, he went for a DAS in the competition so he got around the opponent's neck and then wanted to roll underneath and bring them with him, but the opponent didn't move. And so his head kind of got stuck. 
and uh, his body went. And he said, I felt my neck just go, gong, 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 gong. And, and, he, and then he said, I've got to knock this guy out. So he stood up, knocked him out. Fantastic. But then when we tested him a few weeks later, because his neck was bugging him, his flexion was 170. His extension was 300. His left was 320. And his right was 90. So it's not only about looking at what your performance capabilities are. It can also potentially highlight injury. And therefore, you know, that's a flag for us. We start talking to the sports medicine team. Um, we can then use that information to bring an athlete back to return to play. And next step for us is sort of potentially now we have baselines looking at concussion, return to plays with the neurocognitive aspect as well. Mm, how good. How good. Um, quick follow-up question, quick follow-up question on lateral flexion left, lateral flexion right. Uh Symmetry is a what's a flag for you guys? Ten percent, fifteen percent, five percent. What what what's the flag there for you guys at the moment? Yeah, from what we've seen, um, like a point nine to one or a one point one to one, depending on which side it is, it is usually cool. So a ten percent difference is no problem. We'll accept that. Anything above that at the moment is probably a flag that we'll we'll need to work on. How good? How good? Mate, I want to swing now. We've got these metrics. We've known the test. We've got the metrics. We've seen what they need or, or what, what we need to go to. Um, this progressive exercise prescription, your your neck matrix, neck matrix. can you give us maybe some practical examples of, of say, an exercise you might use in that isometric stage, an exercise you might then bring the athlete to next, um, in the slow dynamic, then fast dynamic, then the uh, rate of force or, or reactionary? Yeah, you bet. You bet. So, if we start off with just the general return to training or general preparation within MMA, just the start of it, we've tested them and their their strength is b below where we need it to be, um, below the average for their weight class. And then strength is obviously the the focus. We'll start at the beginning, static stretch. So let's let's work through a flexion issue. If the person's got flexion, and we're going to focus on that. So we might get them once or twice a week to to preface the programming. We, we have something called an MMA warm-up, which is movement, mobilization, and activation. We might throw the exercise in that activation section, so maybe with some low-amplitude plyos and then um, sort of work through a little circuit, get their heart rate up, and then put the neck within that. Or we might use it um, within the main lifts, so often we're dealing with type A personalities that hate resting. So if we've got them doing two major lifts, maybe an upper push, lower pull, we'll add the neck as the third part of that giant set to almost rest those major muscle groups, but they know that they're not resting. It's like an active rest, but it's an opportunity to get after that neck specific strength. So thinking of that, we'll then use, say, a neck harness. We want to try and focus, first of all, on posture. So a lot of the athletes will get that chin forward position. We really want to try and tuck that chin in and get them really good at holding it, which is another reason we use static at the start. So we try and develop and train their good postures in those positions. And we'll use a neck harness, which is hanging or attached to a cable. And one of the things we're doing at the moment is we're using the valve dynamo to attach between, sort of think like a TRX, I guess, um, attach between two um, lengths like that. And we'll actually use an iPad to get a force output. So we'll bring the athlete down into a particular force, maybe based off the, the force frame although they don't seem to correlate too much at the moment because of the different positions. But we could use that if we wanted to. 
but we're going to get them holding that force position either for long isometrics or maybe for shorter isometrics at a higher force output. So that might be an example for flexion for three to four weeks. Then we'll move on and we can start using something like the iron neck on a cable. And you could use it so that there's, there's one option where you can stay with static if you don't think their posture's um, awesome, but it's getting much better. Put an iron neck on them, face them away from the cable, hold that position again, and then get them to do a lunge. And that way now we're improving that trunk, neck, head, coupling component we're challenging that a little bit more so it's still static strength but a little bit more challenging to that that coupling mechanism so that would be a static one uh, in terms of uh, a slow dynamic strength you can use manual so if you're supine and the the head is back you can basically use a clinch on the front of the head from behind the athlete and get them to force against yourself that's a good one. Um, or you can use one which, with the iron neck again, take a step forward and then actually you can bring in a bit of a rotational component to that as well. So you're still holding it there, but now we're actually looking at a rotation for the hypertrophy component as well. Then when we go to fast dynamic strength, this is where we can get really creative. So this is where you might use a band. And one that we've done is... Um, you, you slip the cross, shoot for a double, slip the jab. That's one rep. You can do between five to eight reps of that. So really it's just that in tension, that on-off oscillatory mechanism, I guess. But you're still getting strength because it's, it's not about speed just yet. It's really about trying to pull out to that end range and hold your posture. Uh, but within sort of sport-specific movements, we get good buy-in with that one. So that's obviously important as well. And then finally, uh, the reactive one, which is probably our favorite, we'll attach an iron neck with a bungee cord to a cable. Um, we'll have either sort of like your your fit lights or your speed lights out, or even just markers. If you don't have them, different colored markers. Find the end range where the bungee cord goes tight and then get the athlete to step back a couple of steps. And then for 15 seconds, we'll call out the colors. And that's where the athlete has to use their footwork to get out, throw a strike or a, um, or a two-punch combination, and then get back to their starting point as quick as possible, so in and out of the contest, and then listen for the call, make the right reaction, and then at the end, as they about to hit, they've got to try and hold that neck position like they would if they're going into a contest. So that that's kind of a progression through that neck matrix, obviously just with flexion, so there's a thousand other things you can do with that stuff. Um, depending on the force vector deficiency and your ratios as well, you just got to make that call based on what you need for your sport. Uh, just, uh, just on that too, we're obviously at, in Vegas, we're dealing with potentially one, two or three athletes at a time. That's it. So it's really easy for us to get very specific with the athletes. But in Shanghai, we did do that within a team setting as well, simply by bucketing the athletes. So it was a neck exercise as part of that A1, A2, A3. So the A3 was the neck. And then I just programmed for whatever that person's deficiency was, and that's where they went off to. So camp phase, camp status is obviously a big thing, simple to complex based on their training age and ability to maintain posture. Force vectors is another component. And then all of a sudden, you might only have two iron necks, but you've got two bands. You've got two other lighter bands for maybe push-up, shoulder tap with the band around your neck for lateral flexion strength. You know, so you can start, you don't need to just use an iron neck or just use bands. You can get really creative if you bucket it.
Mm-hmm. How good, how good. And for the listeners, for the listeners, while we're talking, Gav is like, we slip, cross, he's, <laughs> he's, he's got the head movements going on. He's, he's, I'm there, he's, mate. He's right into I'm it. There. I'm feeling it. Yeah. For sure, for sure. <laughs> and I, I really like the idea of uh, using the, uh, say, dynamo just as a, a raw measure of, of strength. And for, for listeners too, the uh, alternatives might be a strain gauge from Bunnings or something like that. You could set up something mm. pretty similar to that. And, um I'd imagine. Uh, trunk, neck, head, coupling. You mentioned the lunge. Um, and I've seen your work, lunging forward, lunging backwards, different things. Do you do any other, are there any other things that you might use for that component, that trunk, neck, head, um, besides a lunge or other exercises or, or patterns that you might that you really like? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we're doing at the moment is um, putting them into tall kneeling position with rotation. So by taking the the feet and the knees out of the equation, the next step up are the the hips and the trunk that have to stabilise the body. So we're we're not giving the athlete the ability to you know dig their feet into the floor and use that as a stabilising mechanism. We're trying to challenge the trunk more. Um, another thing that's helping us do that actually, even when we're standing, is we've just started to utilise the Exafly flywheel. So put on a harness and start ripping that thing out and obviously that's going to rip you back even harder and so we can get really cool data sets on that as well so we're actually utilizing torque for the rotational movements and as an example a single strike might average around 90 newton meters a second i guess and so what we're trying to do what we've seen at the moment is one rep on the exafly can get us around 50 so again it's an accumulation piece um but that really challenges that trunk neck head coupling because it rips you back and you can't move your shoulders too much that's the goal is obviously we don't mind that the body is moving around too much but we're trying to limit that to keep that stability component that's the whole point we're going to brace for that impact and so another one might be putting a neck harness or even an iron neck on attaching a band to it and doing the oscillation movement while sitting Um, because when you see that what you're you don't know when you're going to get pulled. So it's that reactionary component. And then you want to try and relax. As soon as you've gone tense, you want to relax and wait for the next one. And so you, you just happen to get pulled off position. So it does actually naturally help that trunk neck head coupling as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Um, I want to ask you about, you, you've talked about, hey, these strikes, and maybe it was 4,000 newtons um, previously you mentioned, and then just then you're like 90 newton meters to- of torque in the strikes and then kind of reverse engineering that or maybe that's worst case scenario for and then how do you decide what type of stimulus you need to build up to in the weight room so you you've gotten up to 50 newton meters on the exafly how do you then build that up to um or what's the goal with getting closer and closer to say that 90 newton meters or that 4000 newtons that that the kids mm. will actually be absorbing in the fight yeah it's a great question mate and it's probably one that's our current question to ourselves at the moment so this is about the freshest um, part of our neck training is right now we've got this data maybe a couple of weeks ago so it's a really exciting time for us to start playing around with it and we're really in the the bare bones of that answer at the moment Um, and so even the way that we're trying to do it now is is if we've got them twice a week we're probably needing to accumulate at least that number of average forces across across the fight and we don't have huge amounts of data to do this. The more data we get, the better this information is going to be. 
But at the moment, we'd say we're probably going to try and accumulate it within the week. Um, and if we can, depending on what that athlete's like, we've got athletes whose necks are, um, I would say, simply outstanding. <laughs> I can't believe how much load they can lift with their neck. It's quite kind of amazing. So with athletes like that, we probably could get them done in a session um, just within three sets. You know, we'd be able to accumulate that and then some with those athletes. But then there's others where if you tried to do that, you'd give them a headache for the rest of the day and probably the next mm. day too. So I, I guess it's just meeting them where they're at and then also deciding, well, is that what we need to do now or do we save that for the slow dynamic strength component of our neck matrix? Static, we develop that base strength and that posture. Slow dynamic strength, all right, now we've got to start accumulating those loads then in fast dynamic strength, we've still got to keep those loads, but now the expression of that improves in its speed and velocity. And then at the reactive components, like, well, let's see if we can put it all together. Mm, yeah, that's great. That's great. And I, I actually, referencing back to your comment about the fighter who was trying a dance and then got stuck on his head and went pop, 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 pop. Anybody that's grappled has um, probably experienced that and then also <laughs> I know for myself definitely and then also in, in combat sports man the the neck strength of the guys is, is phenomenal compared to other sports absolutely phenomenal um phenomenal. so so your comment about hey we could probably get that in three sets with, with some people I like totally see that really simple yeah yeah and actually that's a great great side note as well mate is um particularly as you know with wrestlers and grapplers their neck strength is really quite good. But when you come to strikers, it's actually not as good, um, particularly the lateral flexion. Mm -hmm. So they're not they're not too bad in flexion and extension because of, like, say, clinch work with Muay Thai or just going into their standard boxing and getting more jab cross sort of impacts. Their flexion extension or that linear acceptance of force is somewhat better but their lateral is is usually not so good. So that's another consideration as well. What's your stylistic background? You got to consider mm. that too. Mm. That makes makes sense. Makes sense. Mm. Hey, uh, application to other sports. You said UFC obviously leading the way. It's a combat sport. Massive application to mixed martial arts. H how do you see neck strength and this type of profiling playing out in, in other sports? Well, funnily enough, I had a great discussion with um, Professor. Oh, Dr. Kerry Peak, who's in Sydney, and she she's um, fantastic in this area and has been involved with it a lot longer than I have. And we had a great discussion about it, saying that the 10 to 40 G forces that we see in a strike for MMA is actually similar in a soccer header. So, like now we're looking at junior sport receiving these head impacts from a soccer ball. What are we going to do? Like soccer is not uh, adverse to it. In fact, it's a really high concussion rate in in particularly female soccer for that reason. So I think uh, soccer, football, those types of sports, rugby, the AFL, there's such a, uh, I guess, a concern around CTE. We don't know how much neck strength can or that coupling can improve that. But we know that volume and strength of hits is a real key influencer of CTE. So you accumulate that. Uh, they think they term it lifetime of force. You're accumulating those forces over your sporting career. You're increasing the chances of getting CTE. So for me, any time your head's got the potential to receive an impact, that's a sport that should be doing this. And mm. I know we're not there yet. And I know a lot of research is saying we're not there yet. 
But I think it's one of those areas where we have to keep trying and let research catch up to us. And hopefully in the meantime, we're preventing some of these issues. Mm, we shouldn't sure. just stop, right? Like it's it's probably one of the most serious injuries you can get. So don't just stop and wait for research. Like let's go do something about it. Worst case scenario, we prevent neck injuries and they can train more. Fantastic. Mm, mm, for sure, for sure. It makes me think of like kids soccer, right? Kids got a head only so big. The ball is uniform size and uh, maybe yep. these smaller balls, I don't know. But take, take a couple of headers. It can, uh, it's a pretty big impact and though it's traveling some momentum. Yeah. 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 And particularly for corner kicks, you know, that's where the 10 to 40 Gs come in. And then obviously throw-ins are a little bit less. But, yeah, that's exactly what she was saying. Uh, Kerry was saying is, um, like, maybe we should – because in America, I think headers are banned in junior soccer. So what's Australia sort of doing about it, I guess? Yeah, classic. Classic. Mm. There you go. Mm-hmm. There you go. Hey, so um, obviously your role at the UFC is not just, hey, let's get the next strong – You've got, to, you've got to take care of other stuff as well. Man, uh, th- tell us about what else you might measure in the uh, in the job with what you're doing with the current crop of UFC fighters. Yeah, so we, we have Tier 1 and Tier 2 diagnostics. So basically, as soon as a, an athlete walks in the door in Vegas or part of the Shanghai Academy program, soon to be Mexico Academy program, they'll do the Tier 1 diagnostics. They're the four tests that we've found or thought will give us the most information around helping an MMA athlete prepare for their sport. So just as a side note, um, often in the UFCPI, we've sort of utilised and bastardized George St. Pierre's um, model of the FMA model. And so it's like we we look at every athlete as a fighter, a mixed martial artist and or an athlete. And with regards to strength and conditioning, we are predominantly working on that athlete component. So these four tests are really going to help us decide what direction we go with to help this athlete become a better MMA and fighter in their sport. So First one we do is isometric mid-thigh pull. So we're looking at peak force. We're looking at rate of force development or time um, at peak force at particular time frames. So we've switched between 150 milliseconds and 200 milliseconds. Um, that could potentially go even faster now that we know this data about how fast the strike is thrown, but that's TBD. So that looks at our maximal strength. We then do a full counter movement, loaded counter movement jump profile. So we'll go 0, 20, 30, 40, 50, and 60% for males of body weight, and then 0, 20, 30, 40, 50 for females because we found that between 50 and 60, there just wasn't enough change to make a difference. And we'll look at things like power, output, and then look at the the force velocity loading profiles from that and start helping our decision-making there. We've also just switched to a jammer punch test loaded diagnostic for the upper body as well which was created by our sports scientist brett grelly here in vegas and so we're using the jammer arms on the right and the left side with different loads 10 20 and 30 percent uh body weight and we're using the gym aware to to calculate those velocities and get a load velocity profile on on the athletes for the upper body and then finally we add that neck testing into it so that's the tier one diagnostics that gives us a really good bunch of information and that just takes an hour with one athlete um, to do all of that. So it's pretty, pretty straightforward. The tier two diagnostics are basically up to the coach. What's going to help your program? So we kind of have an endless list there, but the main ones we're looking at are your slow dynamic strength lifts. And there's a reason for it. 
So basically, the four main lifts we use are a chin-up, loaded chin-up, a bench press, they're your upper body tests, a trap bar deadlift, and a safety bar box squat. The reason we use safety bar is a lot of our cohort population can't put a bar on their back because their shoulders are so bad. So the safety bar is a much easier across the board. No one's going to have a problem with that. And then the box squat is often we don't need the full range. Uh, often we also have had athletes in the UFC who have never done resistance training before. So fascinating sport from that perspective. They don't get the options of a lot of Australian sports where they get brought up in S&C. So the box squat limits that movement, gives us a range, and then that also gives us the lower body strength. So long story long, from that, we can actually use that to determine what the athlete needs in terms of our phenomenology. So if the athlete reaches a absolute or relative strength that is deemed strong enough in their weight class, which we have the normative data for, then their static strength tick. Now we go to the slow dynamic strength and we need an upper body lift and a lower body lift, one of each, to be ticked in terms of um, normative data, which we also have now on the slow dynamic strength lifts, which is really exciting. And if they can tick an upper body, a lower body, and a static isometric mid-thigh pull and be above the average for their weight class, we will deem them strong enough. That's when the load velocity profiles will actually make a difference and can be applied into their training. Before that, doesn't matter. Strength is the focus. We've got to get them strong enough. The reason that works really well is because in the academy system, our athletes aren't in the UFC, not because they're not strong enough or fit enough. It's probably because they're not good enough just yet. They're young kids and they're learning the craft. So what we've done is through those tests, if we deem them to be strong enough, we have then a conversation with the head coach, Dean Amersinger, and say, hey, this athlete X has tested to be strong enough both statically and slow dynamically. Do you think we could get away with just doing two S&C sessions a week and you take him upstairs for one extra technical training session? Because that's what he needs more of. Because at the moment, from our point of view, he's strong enough, so we're good. And then in the two sessions we've got him, we can definitely maintain or at least try and improve that capacity because now we'll be looking at a phenomenology-based approach, right? Where are your deficits? Let's work on probably your power or your velocity end of the spectrum if you're considered strong enough. And so we're going to start developing that. We need that two times a week. Go upstairs, do more of your skills training, become a better fighter because ultimately that's what matters, not S&C as much. And um, that's been the systematic approach that we've brought into the academy program. But we also kind of use it here, except we don't have the ability to, to take away training or add training because the coaches are outside of the PI here in Vegas. Mm, mm, for sure, for sure. Hey, for the listeners, can you explain the jammer um, and how that's set up on, on the racks and that type of thing? Yeah, sure. So if, if you're unaware of what a jammer arm is, um, there's a couple of companies out there now that have like a mechanical arm uh, that you can attach things to and it kind of swings in a curvilinear angle. And you can use that for all sorts of stuff like uh, snatches overhead or bench throws, things like that. And so what we do is we put the athlete in a half kneeling position with a handle or a pin on the inside, uh, a peg, sorry, uh, depends on the percentage, but I'll get to that. But basically you're going to be in a half kneeling position. So let's say we're testing your right arm. You're going to hold the handle on the jammer arm with your right hand. That means your left knee will be forward and your left hand will be slung on the inside of your thigh. So that way we can't use too much 
rotation to cheat. We're trying to basically make it a more reliable test. From there, you take the jammer arm forward a little bit. So you take the weight of the jammer arm. We then set up the gym aware on that jammer arm as well. And what we're looking for is we've put a dip measure of the gym aware on there. So they can't dip 0.2 meters. If they dip backwards and throw, it means they use too much of the counter movement. And so that's another way that we've been able to make this test a reliable movement. So then we'll use um, 10%, which is often just one of the pegs that you can put in there. It's about um, two kilos plus the jammer arm. And then you get a handle plus weight and it goes up from there. So I think, sorry, my bad. The peg is 0% and then you go 10, 20, 30 with the, the handle. And then you do it on the other side. And so you can get a, a, a really nice um, sort of linear trend line and you can sort of see when it's compared to the average of at the moment the UFC because we haven't got heaps of data on weight classes yet. Uh, you can see where they are. So whether their their outputs are above or below the average or the mean, or do they drop at particular loads? If they drop at 30% more than others, then maybe it's a strength component, fast dynamic strength component that we're looking at. But again, mm. if they don't prove to be strong enough, then don't worry about using that data. Let's just get them strong. But at least we know. We've tested it, so we know. We know exactly what we've got to attack. Mm, how good, how good. And I, I love the inclusion of the uh, slow dynamic lifts um, into that sort of UFC uh, performance profile of like a reflecting on um, and just questions I'd get asked to is like, what do we do if we don't have that stuff? And I was like, oh man, um, like if you're comparing mid-thigh pull, you're comparing say force and uh, counter movement jumps, I was like, well, you kind of need force plates to, to do it. But that inclusion just because some gyms won't have it. The majority of gyms won't won't have that right in yep. MMA. Um, yeah. So that, that's yep. a great initiative, really is. It, it's funny because I, I've sort of always thought of that because I've been in that those shoes where I've trained in like just you know average little gyms with no equipment and I've and this is in China as well where I've had no equipment and I'm like how am I supposed to do any of this fancy stuff and so in my head I'm thinking well if I was a coach I'd want to know how strong my athlete needs to be if I'm training him in the garage and they're still in the UFC because that still happens so how strong does my athlete get need to be before I need to start working dynamic stuff with them? And so we've actually created that. We've just got to get that information out there soon as we keep building it. But it's super cool. We call it the fighter zone. So like if if you, you're on a chin up, once you pass the fighter zone, you're deemed strong enough, you know. So mm -hmm. it, it gives the athletes real um, targets and initiatives and motivation to get there. How good, how good. It's awesome, Gab. Man, we could probably keep chatting on this for uh, hours, <laughs> I'd say, for hours. Um, but we're in, in interest time, it's late over there for you. And uh, um, I know you got a, a little one there at home as well. But, mate, I just want to finish up with a couple of quick questions. Uh, and first one, what's been your big aha moment? Uh, maybe it's you've been at a conference and you heard something or speaking to a colleague and, and something's popped up and the light bulb's just gone off in your head. What, what, what's been that moment for you? Um, it's probably been multiple moments just talking with the athletes, to be honest. Like they give me such good feedback about what they feel in fights. And I think we'd be um, amiss not to approach that as strength and conditioning coaches to try and help them. And that's led us to some really interesting testing and prescriptions, which are probably quite different from the traditional sort of settings but the purpose and the science backing it up is all there as well 
So uh, things like now we've created a sled test, which is looking at um, tissue saturation and looking at the drop-off. So now we can look at power, capacity, efficiency of all the different components involved with the gas analysis, with your muscles, with your heart rate, and actually go, well, now we're not just giving you sled work because it's hard. We're giving you sled work because of this. Maybe it's CO2 tolerance. Maybe it's um, your muscles aren't oxygenating or they just cut out. So what can we do about that instead of just getting them on the bike or something along those lines? So the targeted approaches has purely come from conversations with athletes and then going to my colleagues and having these discussions, constant aha moments, like almost weekly because of how good all these guys are at what they do. Mm-hmm. So true. So true. So I'm going to ask there. I'm going to ask there. Uh, the sled test that, you, that you're doing now, what was the conversation with the athlete that actually sparked that test being developed? Um, the conversation was, I don't feel tired, but my legs and arms give out. And so I can't, uh, that's my gas out, essentially. It's not gassing out because my heart and lungs are not helping me. I don't actually feel like I've got a very high heart rate, but I go into a grappling situation, I come out and I can't move my legs or arms and I'm a fast person. So I don't know how to go about that. So I'm like, all right, well, why are we looking at heart rates? If that's not the issue, we should be looking at like how we can improve the muscle's oxygenation rate and the ability to continually recover itself. And so that's what we've started doing with near-infrared spectroscopy in the sled test and all our assault bike tests as well, such as the glycolytic power. We, We attach the nears and we start looking into those details and with the gas analysis as well, we're starting to look into, um, you know, oxygen, CO2 uh, rates. We're looking at tolerance to CO2 in the sled test as well. So now do we start adding in some breath hold work to try and improve that component? So uh, it's just this ongoing, like, thought, think tank, I guess. And it's all stemmed from those athletes. Mm, that's great. Great. Yes. Uh, the, the central versus peripheral fatigue uh, issue. Um, mm-hmm. Really good, Gav. Really good. Hey, what are you going to be most excited about uh, developing in the next sort of 12 months in your own professional development? It might be this next stuff, um, refining that or, or, or something else, but but let us know. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think we've got some exciting stuff coming out with um, mouth guards and heart rates. Uh, that's going to be super cool because if we can start looking at training load based on heart rates and hits at the same time. Now we can start helping MMA coaches structure their training loads. And that's just been the biggest headache for MMA because wearing heart rate monitors while you're grappling is not the easiest thing to do. So if we can put it in the in a mouth guard and use the capillaries to measure the heart rate, then that's probably the most exciting piece that we've got going on at the moment um, with potential. And then obviously just creating data sets for the people out there that are interested in MMA and want to know how to help an MMA fighter, I think that's super cool. How good. How good. Hey, uh, how do people, if they want to learn more about uh, Gavin Pratt, what he's up to, what he's doing at the UFC, um, how, how do they get more information? Uh, so for me, I've only got Instagram, which is Gav underscore Pratt. Uh, and then that's about it, actually. I, I don't have time for social media anymore that much, mate, as you would understand with two kids yourself. Um, it's just work and kid life now. So that's probably the best way to get me. Mm, and, good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully I can um, – I'll, I'll share an email or something like that in the future as well. No problem. No problem. Gavin, 
Absolutely awesome conversation, man. Learned so much. Appreciate it, as always. Thanks for being on the podcast. Appreciate you, mate. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, before we all ride off into the sunset today, we've got to give some thanks again to our partners at AlphaFit for supporting this show and the strength and conditioning community. Make sure you visit alphafit.com.au slash ASCA. And look, that's another one of our episodes complete. I hope everyone has had a great start to this year, as mentioned at the start. And until our next one, I'm Joseph Coyne, and this is the ASCA Podcast.